0: Welcome to Back to Excited, episode 158. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always my colleague from Puppets.com. It's Acting the Foolerman. Hi, everybody. We also have an esteemed guest from uh, Maple Leafs Hot Stove. We have Ian Tullock. Ian, how are you doing?
1: Not too bad. How are you guys doing?
0: Yeah, surviving.
1: (laughs) One day at a time. One day at a time.
2: (laughs) That's all any of us can do, is power through one day at a time. Uh, Much like the Leafs, with their one day at a time ethos. (laughs) they have to bring to any professional hockey team um yeah we thought we'd get ian on uh to diversify things a little bit arvin and i are very good at being sad at each other about how things have been going but ian adds a new element and we decided to talk about are we happy with this hockey team we're 19 games in as ian has pointed out it's about a quarter of the way through the season it'll be 20 by the end of today we're recording in advance of the game against the islanders And we wanted to see, okay, are we good with how this has gone? As a level set, we can say the record's pretty good. Leafs have played 19 games. They've won 12, lost six in regulation, and they have one loser point for a total of 25. That's a good rate. If that's sustained, that gets you in the playoffs, and it probably gets you seeded. Are we content with that, or are there concerns? And uh, courtesy to a guest, Ian, do you want to go first?
1: Yeah, sure. I appreciate it. Um, Sorry, I'm calling you Arvin right off the top. I appreciate it, Fulhaman. But yeah, this Leafs team, it's tough watching them night to night because I feel like when we started the season, no one wanted to care about this regular season. You guys didn't. I didn't. Most fans didn't. After watching them lose year after year after year in the playoffs, how much are you really going to take out of a regular season? And I wasn't sure how much I was going to take out of it. I'm looking for little things like how is Nick Ritchie fitting in? Ooh, not well. How's Michael Bunting fitting in? He actually looks pretty good. How's that third line looking? I didn't think it was going to work to start the year, and it's working really well. They're at 60% expected goals at five on five. That is not something I expected coming into the year. And so, crazy
0: low event too.
1: Yeah, no, and that's what you expect from a David Camp line, right? I mean, the pucks aren't going in at either end, uh, no scoring chances at either end, but you tilt the ice in your favor against better competition with tough usage. That's a very good thing to happen. So I think Andre Kasha deserves a lot of credit for that. I think David Camp's better defensively than I'm willing to give him credit and worse offensively than even his biggest <laughs> fans might not be willing to admit to. But if I'm breaking down the Leafs right now, I'm weirdly positive about them. And I know that it's weird to be positive about the Leafs you know, during the regular season. You're thinking, okay, they just came off a loss against Pittsburgh. There are still problems with how they defend the rush in certain instances. There's still defense when you look at it and go, eh, it doesn't look like he's playing his best hockey right now. But... I look at this Leafs team, I see a team that if they're not first in scoring chances for at 5-on-5, they're definitely in the top two or three right now, and they're 28th in 5-on-5 goal score. The the pucks just aren't going in. Austin Matthews, one-timers, his wristers off the rush, all of his great quality chances, they're not crossing the goal line, and I think that really messes with your brain when you see it. Anytime shooting percentage and raw talent don't meet up, it really messes with your analysis. and. I think on-ice shooting percentage and learning about these things over the last few years it's really helped me kind of stay mellow during the ups and downs of the season because I try not to get too carried away with a player who's on a heater, and I try not to get too carried away with a player like Nick Ritchie who's, I think his on-ice shooting percentage is below 1% right now. So at some point, pucks are going to go in for him, and I know that the offense is going to be there. I guess this is where the defense is the biggest question moving forward, and Arvind, I know that you have some concerns about that, so... I'll tee you up here to just kind of go off on the Leafs defense right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, for all the reasons you mentioned, it's, there, you can look at this Leafs team and by almost any reasonable metric, you can think th- this is a for sure a good team and possibly a great team. But, you know, if you believe that, um, as you said, the shooting percentage will regress and that, you know they they have the talent and that Jack Campbell, you know, if, he might not perform at a Vesna level the entire year but he's, you know, every single game gives us a little more evidence that he's genuinely an above average goaltender. There's a lot of reasons for optimism there. With the Leafs defense, I mean there there has been a lot of discussion about like oh the Le- you know the Leafs are now winning in different ways or we're pl- we're playing in tight games. I think the team and Keith have mentioned that specifically and we're we're, we're winning with goals, with reducing goals against. Um, I, I should give a credit to Katya here because she posted this in our in our Slack chat, where she eventually uh, effectively uh, fact checked this. And the basic difference between the Leafs' defense now and the Leafs' defense basically under Keith's entire tenure is just save percentage, right? It's, it's it's Jack Campbell, and it's not you know not just save percentage, but like expected uh, save percentage above expected. Our goaltender is performing very very well. That makes every defense look good. We're not bad defensively by any means, but uh, you know, I don't. I don't buy that we're you know peak Nashville Predators or anything like that. I, I I don't buy that we're and what's another really really good defensive team like I I don't buy that we're you know Minnesota peak wild yeah peak wild yeah that's a that's a that's a great example. Um, I think we're like an average defensive team, and that's all right in, in a sense because in theory we're a really really strong offensive team and and that's how we're supposed to win games. My in general, I, I still feel quite. Uh, jaded about this team in in a lot of ways i'm I'm not convinced that they are a truly elite team in the league yet, and I think there are two main reasons for that. The first is just that the offense is is there in the aggregate, but there are still a lot of situations where we kind of bash our heads against the wall and don't really get too much and that game against Pittsburgh is a very very good example right. Pittsburgh without Malkin is not a more talented team than the Leafs. Uh, so,
1: Pittsburgh without it, Malkin and Crosby is not a more talented team than yeah, the when Leafs. they that destroyed, didn't seem to matter last time.
0: Yeah. I, I, side note, it feels like we haven't beaten Pittsburgh in like forever.
2: Someone calculated that we're like four, uh, sorry, one and four
0: against them in our last five
2: times. And of course, with COVID, that means that spans like two years.
0: Yeah. Like I, the, the last victory I remember against Pittsburgh was the one in 16-17 that took us to the playoffs.
1: And you'd think that oh. wouldn't matter, but I remember Travis Yost had an article a while back breaking down how if you have a bad record against a team in the regular season, it actually is a decent predictor of how you're going to do against them in the playoffs. So that's something to keep an eye on if you run into Pittsburgh in the playoffs. I don't know yeah. how well they're going to fare the rest of the way, but just something to think about.
0: Yeah, but, you know, against Pittsburgh yesterday, we, we didn't get that much offensively. Like, I, I know we probably won the expected goals battle, and the, we certainly won the Corsi battle. But I'm always was,
1: checking the deserve to win on me. Yeah,
0: there, but there was a ton of blocked shots. Pittsburgh was sitting on a 2 0 lead for a large portion of the game, and the game state never changed, so they're just comfortable, you know, more or less sitting in a shell and not giving up huge chances. Um, and we were unable to break that down. It's like, okay, well, this is a consistent problem we've had. And not to bring up, you know, the, the, the last playoff loss again, because I know it's a sore spot for all of us, but like the most damning part was not necessarily game. You know, it was not necessarily to say like Game Five, right? It, it was Game Six and Seven when things mattered. We laid an egg offensively, right? Things when he really
1: tightened up, yeah. And Montreal Martin wasn't able to break through. Yeah, Matthews Montreal shut us down
0: offensively. We, you know, in Game Six we had that great start to overtime, obviously, and didn't work out. But Game Six and Seven, we, we didn't get our red blob of death. You know that? You know when all those on those shot plots where um, you see the Leafs. At their best, they are just generating tons and tons of chances from, from in tight. We didn't generate that yesterday. And there's still games where we don't generate that. And there's still teams where we face them. And I'm like, I'm not sure we're going to get a whole lot of chances. Right? I wonder
1: how often you'd feel that way if you followed the Boston Bruins closely on yeah. a regular basis. No, that, that's, or that's the, the other Calgary thing. the Calgary Flames or the Carolina Hurricanes or another good hockey team.
0: Well, and I also think there's, there's two things that I'm – where I think I could, my thinking is, is for sure flawed in some sense. One is that, you know, by the stats, the Leafs actually do get a lot of these chances, right, in aggregate, and that, that's, that's something that is important and matters. Um, and a lot of those chances haven't gone in this year for, for whatever reason, right? And that definitely, like, poisons the eye and makes you think, oh, you know, we're not really getting those great chances because I haven't They're seen a lot of them go in. They're
1: in the league in that metric in terms of the difference between their expected goals for and their actual goals Yeah, and goals
0: it's, like, an absurd difference as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess those couple things are, are giving me pause. The other thing, I, sorry, I forgot to mention is just that – when it comes to our style of play, and Fulman, I want you to touch on this because I think you, you're among the first people who I've seen consistently make this claim very early into Keefe's tenure. The, the way Keefe has us playing in the offensive zone, we I feel dominate possession a lot of the times, but we are open to counterattacks, right? We rely on breaking down set defenses, meaning a lot of our shots are, even when they're on net, they are through through bodies or from far away, they're through sticks and whatnot, which which can be a positive, but it also means a large proportion of our shots end up, you know, missing or getting blocked and things like that. I think Corsi might overrate us in that regard. Um, Although this isn't like, this is a fuzzy thought, not a very well-defined one. And then when things go the other way, we are a lot more prone to rush attacks against because we have our entire structure set up in the offensive zone with a lot of movement, a lot of people rotating around. Justin Hall is a net front. John Tavares is playing right D. Um, So that can lead to these panicky situations in transition. And in fact, maybe this is, more in my mind because of both goals against yesterday, which were effectively transition goals against. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. If, what do you think about that, Fullman?
2: That thought was actually inspired, believe it or not, by some good old-fashioned Randy Carlisle hockey, way back when with the Leafs, because the Leafs used to get outshot all to hell. I believe at their absolute nadir one season, they had like a 42% percent Corsi, and they would sort of hang around the playoff race, And they would always say, well, it's the quality of the chances. And of course, the quality of the chances was not really adequate to compensate for what they were doing. But the Leafs would get hemmed in for what felt like two to three hours at a time. But the counterattack with Phil Kessel and Joffrey Lupul, or whoever else, as time went on, was rush-based. Because those teams that set up against us would be making passes around the outside of the zone. And a certain percentage of those get intercepted. And when you have a puck moving across the top of the zone that gets cut off, you are off to the races in terms of a rush chance against. I think that that is now happening to the Leafs instead of being one of their prime sources of offense. And I don't mean that exclusively. The Leafs still get rush chances. Other teams still cycle on us, but the Leafs are so cycle heavy and so strong possession wise now, and they are under Sheldon Keefe that I think they are more prone to rush chances against. So It wouldn't totally stun me if they looked better by Corsi at both ends of the ice compared to what they were actually doing to some extent. And, you know,
1: no, that makes a lot of sense. And I know when I, I think of the way that they play hockey, it reminds me a lot of soccer in terms of some of the best possession teams. They have their defenders jump up high into the play to make sure that you can maintain possession It helps you control the game, but at the expense of when you turn the ball over, or in hockey, when you turn the puck over in the offensive end, they can quickly get a rush chance the other way, and you're vulnerable on the counterattack. Morgan Riley is the perfect example of this. When he's on the ice offensively, you can generate a lot because of all those chances he's taking, all those risks he's taking by pushing play up the ice, by activating into the zone. A lot of the times he's playing left wing or right wing on a particular shift because... The play took him there. The play took him on a three-on-two, and he's staying high up in the play because that's where the play is, and it would be dumb of him to skate back and avoid offense because the offense is right there on his stick. But when there's an odd man rush coming back the other way, those add up. And over time with someone like Morgan Riley, you can measure this, and you can see, okay, even though the pros arguably do outweigh the cons, there are a lot of cons that you can take into account here. Now, you guys are both stats people, so you're, you're big in the aggregate. You don't worry too much about the small sample. You worry about how are things looking after 15 or 20 games because this is actually a decent sample at this point in the season. You can start to take away some meaningful takeaways. I think Brody has looked way better defensively than he looked to start the year, and that was a major concern for me. I thought he was, in the first few games of the season, Port defending a rush, Port moving the puck, just didn't look like a top-four defender, the one that you'd expect from the year previous. I think he's looked much more like himself. I think the biggest question mark on the least blue line right now, we'd all agree, is Jake Muzzin. Because over the last couple years, regardless of who he plays with and regardless of who he plays against, and by that I mean strong competition, weak D partner, he drives results at 5-on-5. Five and, five. and that's a very tough thing to acquire in the NHL. Every team's looking for a defenseman who can do that at 5-on-5. Five five. He tilts the ice against the top competition. And he does it without moving the puck well. I thought that maybe the puck moving this year and last year had deteriorated, and that was something that was a big flaw in his game. But I look back on it the last few years. It's been bad since his time in Toronto. He's been one of the worst puck movers from the blue line on the Toronto Maple Leafs, if you look at Corey Schneider's manually tracked data. And even when he was the worst puck mover on the team in the last two seasons, he had positive five-on-five metrics. So he was doing other things without the puck to tilt the ice in the Leafs' favor. I don't think he's doing those things this year. I still don't think he's getting killed, but it's not top pair Jake Muzzin that you would expect, and I'm worried that this might just be who he is at this point. I don't know. Is this a slow start to the season? What are you guys seeing from Jake Muzzin? Uh, I'm
0: very worried about it. Yeah, I mean, I think Jake Muzzin's been one of the more underrated players of the past 10 years or so in the NHL. Like, I think peak – if Jake Muzzin was playing, like, he has been over the past few years. I think he's a Stealth ke- Team Canada nomination. Like, I think he would genuinely have a spot on that team because he's, he's, he can be that good, especially because Canada's a bit weaker on the left side well, than the right they're side.
1: they're too busy putting Jay Bomeister on the team, so I don't know <laughs> yeah. if they have room for him.
0: Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been really worrisome. Very early on, Fullman and I had a podcast where we said, if Jake Musson doesn't play like Jake Musson, we are just, like, straight up fucked. There, there, there's, no, there's no getting around it. Um, it's been a little bit better since then, and again, in aggregate, it's not awful. But there's just these moments where last night he, he gets beat on a rush by Jeff Carter, who's thirty thousand years old,
1: it right? Like, plenty of time to see it and position yeah, himself. Yeah, so it's like it happened in happen. slow
0: motion. It was it was really yeah. bizarre, right? These little the, these little moments. It's not like he's suddenly forgotten how to play hockey, but these little moments where you know he was never incredibly feet of foot, he was never, as you said, incredibly deft with a puck on a stick, but they're just happening you know, a little bit more frequently, and that's enough to take him from really, really good, you know, top pairing-ish defender to maybe only a league average or below, slightly below defender, which is, again, not awful, he's not, you know, it's not like he's, he's Roman Polak or anything like that, but when we need him to really elevate a pair beyond the, the talent of the other guy, because Justin Hall I don't think is phenomenal either, it can be a problem. It can be a, a real problem, and Overall, that that pairing has not done incredibly well throughout the year.
2: It's concerning because we've talked about this before on the podcast. I know, Ian, obviously you're familiar with this too, but that was a really good shutdown pairing. And it took a while for, I think, people to even recognize it because they thought with Justin Hall, really, and then Jake Muzzin. I think Arvin's quite right. He was underrated because he's not like a huge name, lots of power play points kind of defenseman that people just know, but they were really effective doing hard, hard work. And now it's just, that's a strength that is showing signs of atrophying. And my argument was
1: always that Muzin Zaitsev was a good pairing and it wasn't because of Nikita Zaitsev. (laughs) No, it was not. Uh,
2: Yeah. Well, that, um, that playoff series against Boston, they looked remarkably competent together. Hmm.
1: And that's what Muzzin does for his partner. He makes life easier on him by doing very little things that are kind of hard to pick up, but I'm sure a, a high-level coach, a high level defense, uh, someone who understands the game very well, will pinpoint those and say, yeah, he positions himself really well here without the puck, in zone against the cycle, and his D partner is easily able to pick up the puck and make a play, whereas another defenseman might be out of position at that point and play continues. There, it's very little, tiny, for me, uh, at times, unnoticeable stuff that Jake Muzzin does to drive results at 5-on-5. Five five. He's a weird player to watch because, like you said, Arvin, when he has the puck on his stick, it doesn't look great, but he's led the team in, in points per 60 at 5-on-5 five five among defensemen over the last couple of years. It's so weird. I have trouble assessing him because some guys, it, not, not just in this sport, in other sports, look weird while they get good results, and you try to compartmentalize it with your brain because you go, I know that you're doing positive things to impact play. But I'm also seeing a lot of things that I know look bad, and I'm having trouble weighting those things properly. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if it's shifted the other way this year with Muslim, but even despite all these criticisms we have of him, he's playing top competition alongside let's say not the best d partner on the team, and he's still above he's still above fifty percent in all the key metrics, which is what you would want more or less. yeah
0: it there's there's definitely also like some some outcome bias here in the sense that I think you know they have a thirty percent goals for percentage or something like that, and it, that's driven primarily by bad goaltending when when they're on the ice. Now, part of that might be stuff that isn't captured in goaltending or in, in in expected stats, right? Like the the Carter goal yesterday, as as a very obvious example. Are you
1: going David Johnson on us with the on ice save percentage?
0: <laughs> but it's i it, it, it still it still hasn't looked. Amazing, and it's also the, the competition that Muzzin has faced this year. I don't think it's been as rough as uh, in in years prior. Like last year, he was comfortably facing top lines more, and now perhaps reacting to the the downturn in form initially. Keith has has used Brody and, and Riley a bit more in, in those in those settings, um, and also there was you know some some defensive pair shifting at, at various points as well, uh, where where Brody and Muzzin. Uh, played together but yeah like he's not getting as tough minutes as, as last year and his results are still a little bit worse and yeah again if, if, if this was not a guy if this is a guy we weren't as familiar with we'd just say we'd take the simple approach we'd say he's 30 whatever plays a hard game probably just declining right and that that seems like the likeliest outcome but it's it's very problematic for the Leafs if so because Fulman as you said you know Brian Leach isn't walking through that door
2: yeah there's, there's no alternative. It's the same thing with the big four in terms of forward production. We do not have a replacement. Whereas you can move around a hell of a lot of supporting parts from Bunting, Kasha, Ritchie, Engvall. Uh, David Kampf is actually kind of fixed because he does a weird specific thing that seems to be working. But there's a very clear demarcation between the guys who matter a lot on this team, to whom even one injury or serious decline is a big problem, and then a lot of spare parts.
1: It's $5 million plus on cap friendly, and everyone below that, basically. Exactly,
2: yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying Alex Kerfoot isn't nice, but the reality is
1: they can adapt. I'll say that. I'll put my (laughs) hand up and say that.
2: He's been kind of good this year. Someone kind of went off on me on Twitter for saying, you know, he wasn't that big, and they were like, when will people give Alex Kerfoot the credit he deserves? So you know what? Here is a modest amount of credit to Alex Kerfoot. That's me doing that right now. He's played pretty we well. like
1: stats on this podcast, right? We really <laughs> like those. He was brutal last year at uh, driving play at 5-5 five five without William Nylander.
2: I, I think when Alex Kerfoot is trying to carry a line, it's a very bad situation for us and for him. Whereas mm. if he's a complimentary winger, I think he's sneaky kind of good at that. So, I, I mean, yeah. that's another way I mean, way it is also just an easier job. Yeah, I know. That, and the reality is, you look better with better players. Um, details at 11. But I do think that he's... <laughs> I would say that that difference feels exacerbated in his case.
1: I wonder with third-line forwards at the NHL level, they might be the weirdest guys to evaluate because you want them to do more, mm. but they can't. It's just, that's what... They're third-line NHL forwards. They can't make that high-level play that you would want them to make off the rush. They're not... As impactful as you'd want them to be, but they're still effective at a few things, and it's why they make that three plus-ish million-dollar paycheck that you're looking at on cap friendly. And every fan base is thinking about moving it in the off season (laughs) to try to make room for that player who actually makes a difference. But, well, we're in the middle of the season right now. We we don't have the flexibility. I guess we're going to hold on to this three-ish million-dollar player who provides a little bit of value. That's Kerfoot on this team. It's a third liner on every other team. We're doing it with him, so I get it, but. Man, I just—I still find myself wanting more from him, and mm-hmm. this is a transition for me to the Pierre Engvall story because I think anytime you watch a player and you want more out of them, it's, it's naturally frustrating because you see certain tools, you see certain attributes. With Engvall, it's the ability to transport play up the ice automatically, just a free exit, a free entry, and then you want him to make a play. You want him to make a pass, to break down the defense, make a shot, to generate a scoring chance, and he doesn't do that next part. Mm-hmm. And it drives you completely insane.
0: Well, I, I don't know. It I, makes it, you. It doesn't drive me. Who are these people expecting something from Pierre Engval? I don't get it. I,
2: I do. Okay. <laughs> to be clear, based on track record, there is no reason to ever expect meaningful offense out of Pierre Engval. But watching him, I can't help but think. Okay, like, look, I'm six feet flat, and I skated like a friggin' tortoise. And I look at this man. This man, blessed by the gods, who is very large but skates quite well. And I'm like, You have been given gifts, buddy. You know, like, <laughs> can you not just get to a better play than let's float a wrister right
0: into the crest of the goalie? But, but that's the thing. We, we have another guy just like him in Mikhaev, effectively, yeah. right? Like, I know different, they did different frames and whatnot, but
1: Yeah. is another
0: guy. just like, he, you, you have one above average NHL skill. It's the fact that you can really move, mm-hmm. and everything else is like,
1: eh heavy wrist shot um, <laughs> does Engel he's one really of the best players in the NHL at skating back towards his own net. I don't know anyone who does it more than him. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, that's true. Engvall he he one thing I actually do kind of appreciate about him, it's like these small habits or ticks that you notice with players. It's like he doesn't like dumping the puck in for no reason. Like he'll just circle back when we're on a change. I've
1: always respected it when someone I, like I, William I Nylander it does it, when Gardner does it, when a good player does it, I like it. When a third-liner, quasi-fourth-liner does it, you're going, hey, what are you doing? Get that puck deep. And yeah. I don't know, is that the right call? Yeah.
0: I, I think, I mean, I'm sure it's burned us at some point, but I, I imagine his success rate on those plays is, is reasonably good. Um, but, yeah, like with, with Engvall, I mean, I just, I know there's always a like discussion of like, oh, can Engvall take that next step? And in my head, I'm always like, no.
1: <laughs> like, how old is he
0: like why, why, why are we discussing this he, he, he is, is not taking the next six, step. it is a miracle that he is a useful nhl player like that's a huge win we picked him like where very deep in the draft i know i seventh. it was like, seventh wait, was it seventh okay 2014 i think
1: yeah Nois.:
0: yeah oh, always misunderstood i always said about dave Nois,. you know <laughs> underappreciated really at drafting in swedes. Time. swedes yeah <laughs> well i mean depending on who you ask that's all just tommy bergman right
1: Mm. Apparently it's all Shanahan on that Nylander pick, but that, yeah. this is a discussion for another day. Yeah.
0: So, with Engvall, it's just I think he is who he is. Um, it and he's a fine depth player. He work he works well in these like quasi shutdown roles. And but if, if we just need to stop expecting him to do anything more than that, because he he's not going to do healthy- it. Like, he, he doesn't have the puck skills. Like it's and I know he does have like a nice shot when you give him you know when you give him about three years to unload it. And that sometimes works on the power play but like whenever we have a second unit power play and it ends with a pierre engvall slap shot from the top of the dot or from the top of the circle i'm just like okay well that that, that was a lot of wasted time
1: man you have spezza and sandy and just making these magical passes along the perimeter and then it ends up on Pierre engvall's stick and it's just not the same it's just really not the same i feel bad for andre kasha looking from the bench just going like man i'm getting burned here with usage and D-zone starts with David Camp, I can't get on the power play, and Pierre Engvall's out here mm. launching pucks from the boards. Like, what what can I do? I, like,
2: I get the theory of it, to be clear. Actually, I mean, barely even that. But I get, you know, there aren't that many options for the second power play unit for the last spot, I guess. But it's like, this is a guy who has one goal this, so far this year.
0: And in the first you, game, I believe.
2: Yeah, I, You know, and forever in our hearts will it rain, but like, He's probably a little bit better than that. But this is a guy who's probably at his absolute peak, like a 10-goal-ish a guy. I know he's cleared that on a rate basis when he's had shooting heaters. But, like, I don't believe that this guy is actually, like, an, an untapped well of offensive ability. And so I really question putting him on power the second power play unit. The third line that he's on works remarkably well, centered by David Kampf. They're, they're over 130 minutes together now. 5v5 and they still have one goal for one goal against <laughs> and th- that's it against competition that is better than they are so i would so, count that as a, uh, sorry a success in what they're I'm being sure asked you guys
1: to do. have broken down the camp kasha connection pretty well mm-hmm. i know in your most recent podcast you guys dove deep into it they were childhood best friends in the czech republic always line mates and Frankly, I th- I found that absurd because I thought that they had such different play styles. I thought Kasha was clearly a top-six talent, could transport play up the ice, generate offense on his own, get to the slot, generate chances from in tight. I thought David Camp was a defensive 4C. I, I thought they were just such drastically different players that playing them on the same line and expecting it to work wouldn't really make sense. Well, but I mean,
0: but I, I, that, this is one of the things where it's like it shows how big the gap is sometimes between like NHL the NHL and other leagues, where like... David Camp would go to like the 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 Czech Extraliga. I don't know if it's actually called that, um, and he would like win the scoring title there probably. <laughs> right? Like, it, see, it, there's a massive gap. Sorry, go ahead.
1: I was gonna say, you see the players who aren't in the NHL and they're always in the top of the KHL leaderboards and mm. scoring. I'm thinking uh, Brandon Kozan a few years back. It's, yeah. So, sometimes there's a skill gap.
2: Brandon Kozan deserved better. I'll get over it one day, but I always th- okay. He was five nine and he skated like the wind, but his time had not yet come. Five years later, I think he gets a longer run in the NHL. I'm probably deluding myself, but the point is
1: hills <laughs> to die on. Nigel Dawes. I mean, I thought I thought he was a third line, you know, middle six NHL forward. Couldn't couldn't hack it for some reason, and yep. he's a KHL legend. So maybe maybe some guys are just a height bias. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But get- getting back to the camp cash uh, combination because. It's worked they're, the results don't lie when they're on the ice despite less than ideal usage they're hovering around 60 percent expected goals that's not a lie with camp one of the weird things is that throughout his career he's literally the worst player in the nhl individually at turning those xgs into g's he's not a good finisher so yeah, he, he has is zero
0: a offense
2: yeah like yeah. And it's and literally why why like not included like
1: you, you have
0: to treat him as a void yeah sorry
1: but Dubis and Keith seem to think that there's more there, and I don't see it uh, Well, i, I, I'm not I don't sure think, if...
0: I don't think there's more there off- i mean I would be shocked if they think there is more there offensively for for camp like in a genuine way where like, where they think, oh, we can turn this guy into like seventy percent of Jordan Stahl. It's like no, that is not happening
1: well, Jordan Stahl was also one of those couldn't turn x g into g yeah, I know that too.
0: that that comparison was intentional. <laughs> that's how bad that's how how bad comp is offensively it's
1: it's frustrating but what interesting stats on him when you look at micro stats when you look at like specific plays he's making to advance possession up the ice he doesn't turn the puck over in the neutral zone or in the defensive zone and i think that's a valuable trait from a defense first player because he's not looking to break down the opposition structure he's not looking to make a stretch pass he's a player coaches are always going to like and yeah if you don't turn the puck over in your own end I just think naturally that's a very shot-suppress-y type of stat. And I think good players in their own end who can complete a pass onto someone else's stick, when you think about it logically, that's a good thing, right? And I know Camp the second he crosses center ice, I don't think he has much utility anymore. But he can get your team from the defensive zone to the offensive zone, and then hopefully the other guys on the ice can figure it out. And I think that's a valuable skill, and that's why the line's doing what it can. Do you think Pierre Engvall is doing enough puck transporting and enough shooting? And I know throughout his career, he scored at a third-line rate. Do you think he's done enough to stay on the roster when everyone's healthy to be one of their top 12 forwards? Because that was the real Pierre Engvall question I had is, is he one of Toronto's 12 best forwards? Personally, I think he is, but I can understand why people get really frustrated with him. I was curious what your guys' thoughts were.
0: Who do you wave instead of him? Because we have to wave someone when the KF comes back, don't we?
1: He's going through the lineup here in my head. You're not going to waive Simmons. No trade clause. He's been driving the net really hard. You're not going to do it with Spets, obviously. He runs PP2.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Nick Ritchie, man. You, he has a
0: $2.5 million contract.
1: And a second year of term. Yeah. That's going to be a difficult contract to move at this point. But, yeah, I can see what you're can saying be, here. Yeah. Camp is the PK specialist. You're not moving cash. Yeah, up. so it's like... Bunting you like. Yeah. No, you just go through the list, and he's at the bottom of it. Mm. I mean, well, I, I think... I
0: mean, sorry. The, Go, uh, so the waiver rules are meant to avoid exactly the issue that the Leafs have or that the Leafs kind of bring up every single year because we try and hoard 15 NHL caliber forwards and then we're always like concerned about oh man like it feels unfair that we always have to waive one of these guys. like no that's that's the rule <laughs> like you you cannot have that many NHL caliber forwards because like the, the PA effectively doesn't want people like actual NHL players getting blocked because the team just wants to hoard them. Right, so like we just have to face that we're, we're Engwall is clearly an NHL level player, but we have at least thirteen NHL level forwards right
1: now, and they want to get Kyle Clifford in the mix at some point. They love his ability to be uh, do, a shot suppressing so? I th- face puncher. I, th-
0: mm-hmm. I thought I thought the Clifford thing was more just like a. a for like st louis doing clifford a favor where it's like he's going to be in the ahl for a team that he has no real connection to might as well send him to a place that he knows and i I assumed clifford would stay in the ahl but i could be wrong
2: i think that it it. it was a favor to a friend for sure and cal Mm -hmm. dubas once he likes you he will take measures to assist you forever yeah cal Cal dubas is a ride or die yeah i know (laughs) he's a great friend to have in a front office (laughs) But that's that's what gives me pause, actually. Say
1: nicer things about him, man. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but what gives me pause is, like, you look at this and you think, okay, that's just a favor. And then I'm thinking, I've just said the GM of the team really likes this guy and this player, and he's acquired him. That has a way of working out in terms of ice time down the road. And they did, you know, they played him every game against Columbus for all the good that did. So... He's
1: historically been a a David Kampf type of player where there's zero offense whatsoever, but your team has the puck when he's on the ice. And you're usually in the offensive zone cycling or or something 200 feet away from your net. Right.
2: Mm -hmm. But what David Kampf has been showing, and I'll freely admit it's impressed me, is that he can do that at a more elevated level, whereas Clifford at this stage, I don't know. It's like, could he face other Kyle Cliffords and hold them to a draw? Yeah, probably. But David Kampf can face... Uh, an NHL scoring second line, and kind of freeze them a little bit. And so that's where
1: the quality of competition factor comes in. That's why coaches care so much about it. Because I think you're right. I think with Kyle Clifford, a lot of fourth liners, we see this, where every fourth liner has these great defensive impacts. We go, oh, my God, this guy's a great shot suppressor. But he's going up against other guys who are playing the same style of hockey who just want to muck it up and do their little cycling in the corner, dump it in, dump it out and no one's generating any chances when they're on the ice. So I think that kind of overrates some of the defensive ability of sheltered players around the league. So I don't think you're wrong. I think David Camp's ability to do that against better players on the opposition is a factor that sometimes nerds like myself tend to forget about, and it's something that really does matter. With Kyle Clifford, I'm wondering if they try him on a suffocating line like that to see if in the third period, up a goal, is he someone that you play an extra shift or two? I could see that being something they value. Last year, they clearly I, seemed to identify. I, I the... sort
0: of get it, but like, what, how how does that how does that square with the rest of the team construction, right? Like, you have you have you're you're not putting Kyle Clifford on one of the top two lines, obviously. No. no. Um, why, putting him on a line with like Jason Spezza and Wayne Simmons just feels silly because that fourth line's kind of found a nice niche of its own as as a more offensively toted depth line. I think they they've they've looked good. Clifford's not really helping that. And we've just established this third line is working. And we already have, like, one ready-made replacement for anyone on that third line. Not for anyone, for Engvall on that third line um, in, in Ilya Mikheyev. So, like, what, what, what does it matter so much? Like, what's the advantage of putting Clifford there? I, I, they might just try it to try it, but I, I'm, I'm not. Because he punches
1: people in the face, Arvin. Yeah, that, that's what, <laughs> we're paying Wayne Simmons more than he's worth to do that.
2: <laughs> Look, I, I hate to say it, but Kyle Clifford has two cup rings. And yeah. I know that we all roll our eyes at that sort of stuff, but with a team that's been snake bitten all to hell in a couple of playoff I mean,
0: runs, he, he really helped us against Columbus. Oh uh,
2: yeah, he was terrific. Zero zero zero. He had actually the perfect box score, with, where there was
1: nothing in any field on Hockey DB. But <laughs> I'd like to see a few five in the Pims category first. So <laughs> yeah, sure, just, a, just, just to just show down. it.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think that it's possible at least that Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keefe and all of them are a little bit haunted by the prospect that there is something wrong mentally. And they brought in a million veterans last year. We already saw this. Mm. And so well, it, I, I'm just saying that that possibility is not no, zero you, in my mind. You're right. You're
0: right. It, it, can't rule it out Joe
1: Thornton on PP1 didn't solve the culture.
0: Yeah. Well, the, sorry, I wanted to make one correction. Is that uh, what I mentioned before, like, we'll have to waive someone when Mikhaev comes back. I could be wrong about this. I don't know it off the top of my head, but... Because Mrazik's on LTIR, we might have room, and we probably we send Semyonov down, I'm guessing, is the first thing, obviously. Mm-hmm. He's waiver-exempt.
1: The then we, thing we is roll that...
0: with 13 until Mrazik comes back, and I think then we have to waive someone.
1: The thing is... And I'm out here trying yeah. to find ways for Joshua Hosang to get in the lineup, and like you said, it's just they're too deep at forward. I'm probably getting all these names into the lineup. Yeah. I, well, well, you know what? H- Good H- for Hosang, go and he
2: showed down. more than I thought he was going to mm-hmm. at camp. I really mean that, but... I mean, I think that it's going to take a lot for him to to sniff the NHL lineup, besides the fact they'd have to sign him to a contract, which they can do if they feel so inclined.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, it's also, ho has the issue where it's, th- there's only a few spots in the lineup that are possible for him to be in, and, like, some of them are already taken up,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? Because, um, realistically, he's playing on lines one, two, or four,
2: mm.
0: right? So, line four, reasonable, He can he can kind of replace whoever's there, but there's two, there's one spot on line four because Simmons and Spezza aren't going anywhere. There's, uh, assuming line three stays constant, Kerfoot is taking up one spot in the top six. So there's only one other left wing spot that's currently Nick Ritchie's. Maybe Hosang could do better. Wouldn't be hard to do based on how Nick Ritchie has played. Um, Although, as you said, Ritchie is getting quite, um, you know, he's had quite a bad run of of, of puck luck in in some senses. But there's basically two spots on the team that Hosang can be competitive for. Mm -hmm. And then, is he actually going to be a value-added over, over Nick Ritchie there? Like, as much as, you know, I make fun of Nick Ritchie and say, like, oh, he's, he's terrible and whatnot, he, Nick Ritchie has done a hell of a lot more of his, his NHL career than Josh Hosang ever has. Mm. I right?
1: See, maybe I'm crazy. I thought Hosang's first little stint in the NHL there, I looked at all the zone entry numbers and the passing metrics. He looked great to me, well, but the but defense the issue, was obviously bad. Yeah, the
0: issue has never been, what can he do with the puck on the stick? Right? It's, is the rest good enough? That or is the rest okay enough that you're going to allow him to do that stuff.
1: Well, I guess my question is, what's Nick Ritchie doing without the puck? Mm. Well,
0: no, it, it, it's a valid, it's a valid question, but like, I don't think it's immediately obvious that Hosang is is far better.
2: The thing that and, gets me about Ho-Sang, and this is eye testy, so you know, full warning on that. But the knock on him, and I saw it myself is that he can hold on to the puck a little too long. And it feels like a legacy for he was always one of the best guys on his teams. He's a dynamic player. He would make things happen. That's great. That's actually something that gives me pause about putting him with Matthews, Marner, Tavares, Nylander. Because if you are on either of those lines, you should be carrying the puck less than the other two players. And you should be deferential. You just have to recognize you're a complimentary guy. I think, for example, Alex Kerfoot is actually good at that. He, you know, you never get the impression that Alex Kerfoot thinks, oh yeah, it's Alex Kerfoot time when he's playing with John Tavares. <laughs> with Joe, with Josh Hosang, and it's partly a reflection of him being very good, I would wonder a little bit if he would distribute the puck as much as he might. Now that said, you know, maybe when he gets called up and he gets the opportunity, he says, okay, look, you're the left wing who's going to defer. And
1: that's fine. Well, he, he is more he of is a
0: pass-first p- player than a shooter. So in that sense, yeah. it, it'd be good.
1: Up. Yeah, Katya had a great article on him, breaking down how few players there have been historically who have a goal-to-assist ratio as extreme as his. Right. Because he passes right. way more than he shoots. He,
2: to be clear, he does pass. I'm just saying, sometimes there are plays where like, a pass opens up and he just kind of waits and he says, oh, I can take care of this until something really good comes
0: along. Yeah. And
2: sometimes it doesn't.
0: He has a bit of that Mitch Marner thing where he tries – He does. The, there's that great merit quote of Marner doesn't make the right play and makes the better play. And Ho-Sang has a bit of that mm-hmm. tendency in him but doesn't have the talent of Marner. Yeah.
1: Now, I, I – Yeah, sir, go, go ahead. I was going to say he's a bit puck hoggy. And yeah. I, I think that's the concern, right, is that he's uh, playing a bit of hero puck out there every shift. And if he's good enough to break through the defense and gain the zone, it's a valuable attribute. But if you're not breaking the, the structure at an elite rate in transition – that's yeah. really his biggest attribute. And if he's yeah. not doing that... He, his hands are,
0: are honestly bonkers. Like he scored, yeah. a, a, I guess, a game winner in the NHL recently. And it's just like, you, you look at him and his puck skills are so obviously NHL caliber. And like he's probably above average NHL caliber.
2: He, he's, a, he's a talented guy. And I see why people get excited about him. And to be clear, none of the kind of concerns I have are like hard line. If Sheldon Mm. Keefe, you know, came out tomorrow in a presser and said, we like what we've seen in him in the AHL. We think he's ready. We're going to put him up. I would say, let's try it. You know, like, I I am definitely willing to be persuaded otherwise. It's just, these are the things that occur to me when I think, is it time to terminate Josh Hosang's AHL contract, sign him immediately to an NHL deal and
0: bring him in. There's also something to be said for the idea of like, let's give him a full year to just get comfortable, get acclimated, build up his confidence fully. Mm-hmm. and and like, have some continuity and structure, right? And then talk about him maybe for next year.
1: Yeah. You also have to consider the fact that the Leafs are going to be adding a forward at the deadline this year, I would imagine, is going to be their, their target. They have seven yeah. NHL defensemen right now. I don't think they're making an upgrade at that position. So you add another forward to the mix here that just bumps everyone down, another peg down the depth chart. Mm. As much as I, I'm, I'm dreaming in my head of, of getting Ho and his zone entries into this lineup – Realistically, probably not going to happen this year. I don't know. I, I don't want to rule it out, but it, like you guys have mentioned, if Pierre Engvall isn't one of the top 12 forwards in this roster, is Joshua Ossang realistically going to be there? Probably not. The other yeah. thing is, yeah. like,
0: if, you're, if you're the Leafs and you think, okay, what type of forward would be really helpful to us this year? It, it, it's someone who can finish, mm-hmm. right? Like, We're actually in that phase where um, like a Ryan single type who doesn't have much play-driving ability to his name, but he can, he can shoot, would actually be very helpful to us. Because we're, we're fine at, at putting the puck in the offensive zone. We're fine at getting the puck there and getting reasonable chances. We're not really converting on those chances. I bet you Mike Hoffman's well, going to be available.
1: Stopped, <laughs> did they stop <laughs> yeah. being a good finishing team? I, well, I, I think these we, pucks we talk, are going to go in. Maybe we, we talked
0: about it last week. They're, yeah. they're, a good, they're an average finishing team who employs Austin Matthews. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that, that's the extent of the Leafs' good finishing.
2: And, well, and then the question is, okay. John Tavares.
0: No, John Tavares is like, he's, a, he's had years above average, he's had years below average. But like, basically the entire Leafs outperformance and out, in expected goals the last few years has been essentially the same as Austin Matthews' individual outperformance. Yeah. Right? With, so with very, Tavares,
2: this is a okay. distinction we made because I, I know what you're getting at there. He, he generates a ton of stuff himself and then he finishes on it at, an, at like about average-ish rate. But it's more a reflection of the quality of the chances he's getting. So like we're we're pinpointing something kind of specific there.
1: Yeah. And what Arvin me- just described uh-huh. is something you can look up on moneypuck.com really easily. I love the metric that Peter Tanner has there. If you scroll to the right on mm-hmm. the main page of players, it's called shooting talent above average, and it kind of estimates how good they are over their career mm-hmm. at outperforming those metrics. Austin Matthews, like you said, way at the top when you rank leafs. The next closest players are closer league average, a bit above it. It's like Jake Muzzin and Jason Spezza. Yeah, exactly. Outperformed. So, it's so and,
0: and there's there's significant error bars around that, especially with like someone like Muzzin, because like you know defensemen, I think it, it, barring exceptional cases like Shea Weber, don't typically have that much control over over their, their conversion percentage. So, and if you shoot yeah, the puck too
1: often from the blue line, you're actually hurting your offense.
0: Yeah, exactly. So with with these guys, like I, I fully agree that our shooting percentage will rebound to an extent. Right? Like it's not going to be as bad as it's been throughout the first half of the, or first 20 games or whatever because it's been among the worst in the league and it's almost never that bad consistently. But again, we're, we always talk about margins for error, right? Adding a guy who can get you a marginal goal on a, on a shot could, could be useful. And I'd say that's, that's the part where this team is struggling the most relative to others. So someone like like Hosang doesn't necessarily um, move the needle in that regard. So I don't think he makes a ton of sense this year. It could be wrong. The other thing is, it's also hard to get these finishing guys because finishing is a talent that gets paid. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a very obvious talent because you, it shows up in goals and people like goals and people pay goals. So
1: It's usually overpaid, but there are some guys were, who are were weirdly undervalued in that regard. I find it to be such an interesting trait to try to measure and properly value across the market in the NHL.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so there's there's a lot of things up in the air there. I think one other thing we wanted to discuss um, was, was Rashma Sandin, right? Ian you said you, you wanted to, to bring him up a little bit.
1: See, this was before last night's game. So I was really looking forward to breaking down his elite passing metrics and his impact at five on five. And uh, he had a brutal night the other night defending the rush, which I think has actually been a strength of his throughout his career. I like the way he gaps up in the neutral zone. We know he's not a great skater. Y- you can see it. He's not fast north-south, but he has quick edges and he's able to angle guys off at the right time in the neutral zone. And I'm well aware that he had one of his worst nights as an NHL player the other night. But if I look at his first 15 plus games of the season, I see a guy who in sheltered minutes is dominating is I think it's the best third pair in hockey right now. If you look at the metrics him and Lilligren and I love Sandin's ability to break the puck out to make a pass to a teammate get open for the next pass and then start moving up the ice as a five-man unit. In the offensive zone, the way he roams around, the way he – if you've ever seen the more Cal Bell uh, scene in in, uh, Saturday Night Live, he explores the space in the (laughs) offensive zone. I love the way Sandin just kind of roams around and finds the open space, gets his teammate into wide open ice so that someone like Timothy Lilligren, for example, looks way better offensively than I think he ever has because he's playing alongside Rasmus Sandin, who's getting him into open ice. Shana Goldman had a great article on this recently, breaking down some of the top passing metrics for defensemen throughout the NHL. Rasmus Sandin was second to Adam Fox in primary shot assists, which is one of the best predictors of offense that we have. To me, that says that Sandin is already performing at an elite rate offensively. It's obviously the defense that scares you, and that's why you shelter him. That's why you try not to have him out there against the other team's best players. He's had a few shifts against the other team's best players this year. Some of them have gone decently. Some of them have ended badly, like that Jake Gensel goal the other night. So I understand why he's not someone that you're going to move up the lineup right away. But I do think long term, you need to find a way to get him into the top four with his passing ability. I love watching him on the ice with William Nylander and Austin Matthews. They make so much happen as a three-man passing unit in the offensive zone. I'm a huge Rasmus Sandin fan. Even though he's flawed, he's undersized and loses battles below the dots in the D zone. I value puck transporting and puck moving up the ice and completion percentage on passes. Those are aspects that I really value, and he's elite in those categories already. So I'm a huge Rasmus Sandin fan. Shocker.
2: (laughs) For lots of good reasons. I, I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but we said the question with Rasmus Sandin is how good can you be as an NHL defenseman if you're not that fast and you're not that big? Because a lot of other things are very strong and I don't know where the ceiling is. I think he's starting to show certainly, I mean, it's already, I think established he's dominating third pair of minutes and he's a plus playmaker from the defense. I really believe that. Um, I do kind of wonder how those top four minutes come about without an injury and injuries happen. You know, that may be just the most obvious way he's going to get more minutes. Um, because you look Riley, Muzzin, well-established on the left side. Do you want to promote Sandy while flipping him to the right? It's a bit awkward. Um, do you just want to say Sandy and Lily Grin are doing so well, we're going to give them hard work or harder work? Maybe that's something you sort of gradually scale up if you think Jake Muzzin can take a load off a little bit. I don't know. It's, he's in a, a good spot to dominate easier tasks. And now the question is, how quickly do you want to ramp up the difficulty on him?
0: Yeah, I think it's not, it's not obvious. Yeah. Right. Uh, for now, I mean, for this year, it's, it seems pretty likely he's just going to stay in in the role he's in. And, and you know, bad game against P- Pittsburgh notwithstanding, they're generally doing well in that role.
1: And I've never overrated a, a third pairing defenseman <laughs> with excellent shot metrics before. So I'm that's uh, topical. Do
2: what do you think about Travis Dermott? Do you think that? Are, are they just wrong about him? Like, are they not giving him enough credit? Am
1: I, am I wrong about him? I, Is this where you have to look in the mirror and just question yourself. And it's tricky. I, I, I pulled up a graph and showed it to a few of my friends the other day, and I said, hey, did you guys ever think about Travis Dermott's rookie season? Do you ever just sit back and think about it? And they said, no, Ian, we don't. We actually do good things in life. We don't think about these things. And it's just its so frustrating to me because the offensive impact in his rookie season was awesome, mm-hmm. and the defensive impact was awesome. And then after that, he was kind of middle of the pack despite still being in sheltered usage. And it just frustrated me because I saw a player with excellent ability to break out the puck and an excellent ability to defend in transition. And I thought, you add up those two factors, you have a top four play-driving defenseman at 5-on-5. Five five. I don't care if you can't use them on special teams. You can play him 16, 17 minutes a night at even strength, and that's, that's some value right there. That was always my Jason Demers argument in years past where – just because you're not in special teams doesn't mean you can't be a useful defender at five and five. And I don't know, maybe this is a sheltered thing. Maybe the second you stop sheltering Travis Dermott, his gap is all of a sudden a liability because if you try to play too aggressively against the other team's best players, they blow by you for odd man rushes and they capitalize on those chances. Well, so- I, don't,
0: I don't think the issue with Dermott has been his, his defense. I think his defense will actually scale all right against higher end players, but I just don't think he does a whole lot in terms of, the offensive side of things like he we look we see the, the passing and the breakouts and and his ability to, to use his feet to, to move the puck but i don't think he's ever really had much of an offensive impact outside of his rookie year
1: mm-hmm. yeah right so i mean you look at the zone exit numbers have always been fantastic the zone yeah. entry numbers below average
0: right but like defensemen don't uh, very few defensemen make a huge difference in zone entries i'm at you'd think zone exit would be the most important thing but it's possible he's zone-exiting into a cul-de-sac.
1: And that's kind of the problem. The yeah. second he crosses center ice, it's, it's kind of a Pierre Engvall problem. Can you make a play? Can you break down a set defense? Can you win a one-on-one situation, shake down a guy, and then make the next pass? He, he shoots into a lot of shin pads from the points. from the point I've noticed over the years. His point production, you can just look this up over the last few years, hasn't been good since his rookie season at 5-on-5. Five and, five. and even though I don't love using points, to measure defenseman's value. I think there are other ways to do it. It's still an aspect of offensive ability and it's one right. that he hasn't had since his rookie year.
0: Yeah, and, and may, maybe he would do better. He, he has had to play more with Leafs death players who play a very simple game. Maybe that doesn't mesh well with his his kind of frantic carry the puck, um, Helter Skelter style. But it's also, you know, you don't just get given a job with Austin Matthews, right? You have to or You have to earn it and you have to earn it by, you know, doing really, really well at the levels below that. If you don't do that, well, I mean, too bad. Like, yeah, you maybe you'd do better with Austin Matthews. I'd do better with Austin Matthews, right? He's he's a really good player. That's that's how it works. So, I mean, with, with Dermot, th- there's no shame in being a, a reasonable third-pairing defender, which is what I think he is. And that's just, like, everyone has a level, and I think that's more or less his. It, it just makes
1: me sad because I thought he could have been so much more after that rookie well, it, season. It's
0: possible he could be so much more, right? Like, I, I, don't, I think situations can change, and we're, we're certainly nowhere near perfectly isolating for, for development and circumstance and things like that. Um, so maybe he goes to another team, and he, he, I'm, I'm sure that there is a top-four role somewhere where Travis Dermott performs capably. But it doesn't mean that he's going to perform on well the top-four role for the Leafs or that it's like overwhelmingly likely that if he gets parachuted there that he will succeed. I right? think there, he's there, going to be on a another team next year. More
2: yeah, likely I, than
0: I, I would agree.
1: Might be this year.
2: Maybe. You know, I, I, like the only reason that I think they're keeping him around is you probably are going to need more than six defensemen to get to the end of the season. And mm-hmm. the eighth guy coming up right now is, I think we said Christians Rubens or, you know, Alex Biega or whoever else.
1: What's Martin Marincin doing right now? <laughs> Living
2: forever player. in our hearts. But yeah, I know he went back to Europe. So... You know, if, if you deal out Dermot and then you get an injury, suddenly you're regretting it. So I think Dermot sticks around for the duration, probably, unless they acquire someone else. But then you look past this season, and if you like Lilia Grin, you probably start to question hey, why are we paying a uh, million five? Is it for Dermot?
1: And they're already trusting Lilligren more in defensive situations, on the penalty kill. He's gotten more shifts against the other team's best players and actually handled them decently, I think, in terms of Lilligren's one-on-one battles in front of the net and how he handles some of the better players off the rush. Maybe this is—I can turn this into a positive. I really like Lilligren this year. This is the best hockey I've ever seen Lilligren play. He, uh,
2: Honestly, I'm kind of— he fascinates me because he was so touted as like this potential offensive dynamo and they were like but he's gonna have to work on the defense and you look at him now and it's like he seems like a very reliable quiet defensive player and the offense is like very minimal seemingly Did you
1: ever get to watch him on the Marlies? a couple of times but not extensively not as much as you have okay Well, I didn't watch him as much as someone like, I don't know, Kevin Papetti was talking about how he watched him play like 200-plus games. I went, oh, my God. No, I haven't seen him play that much. Oh, God, yeah. I've seen him play a bit over the years. And his first couple of years with the Marlies, I was really frustrated. I'm looking at this player going, he can't quarterback a power play. He's not making plays in the offensive zone. What is this? Mm -hmm. But he's smooth on the breakout. He goes back on a loose puck and makes the next pass up the ice. He's a good one on one rush defender. And I think that that's such an undervalued aspect of kind of measuring defensemen in the NHL right now because most goals come off the rush. I know that cycle chances and your ability to defend against the cycle is something that NHL coaches care so much about. But when you look at how goals are actually scored, they come within about five or 10 seconds of a player gaining the zone. And when that happens, Timothy Lillegren is really good at keeping that gap tight forcing dump-ins pretty often, and keeping things to the outside, not letting them penetrate the middle. I don't think he's TJ Brody. I don't think he's prime Jake Muzzin, but I think he's a good rush defender at the NHL level who, at the very worst, when you shelter him, can get really good results. I kind of want to see him get more of a look with Jake Muzzin, assuming Jake Muzzin can get back to looking like Jake Muzzin, because I think it's a spot that Lilligren, with his puck moving and with his rush defense, I could see him succeeding there. It looked good in the preseason to me.
0: Yeah, preseason is always, definitely can take everything from that.
1: Yeah, no, Igor Zhiganov, loved Igor Zhiganov in the in the preseason, so he's clearly doing great right now. He has the I answer don't...
2: to a trivia question waiting to happen. This Leafs defenseman played, what was it, 70 games, and once gave an interview where he was possibly mistranslated as people licking the coach's ass or something
1: like that. Do you remember that whole controversy? Anyway. Mm. Lost in translation, Russian. Yeah, I, I, I
2: don't know that that was, uh, that was accurately translated. Poor guy. Um, but yeah, you, you know, I, I'm encouraged by the Grin And, you know, if the space ahead of you was occupied by Justin Hall, it's not like that's an insurmountable uh, yeah. obstacle.
0: So maybe. Could see that. Well, and we, we saw when Hall was scratched for, what was it, five games, Dermot got a bit of a, a run with, with Riley, right? That was that, that couldn't was... have
1: gone worse. <laughs> Didn't yeah, love that it was interesting. <laughs> Didn't love yeah,
0: it. Not a huge fan. Granted, I feel, I feel like if I was just trying to get my bearings on facing tougher competition on my offside, the last linemate I would want is Morgan Riley. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I'm just trying to get comfortable. and say like, wait, Morgan, where the fuck did you go? Why are you behind their net?
1: <laughs> You're yeah, behind the net in the offensive zone. Of... Okay, three on one. All right, take away the pass. Take away... Yeah. So... Do my two on one slide that I'm really good at.
0: Yeah, so it's it's it was a tough spot for Dermot, but he, he didn't I, I didn't I didn't have any strong thoughts on like oh wow he's he's really making a case for himself here I, I thought he was he was mostly okay in that um, I didn't check the numbers on that particular pairing maybe it was like especially bad or especially good but it didn't it didn't there was no obvious indicator to me of of like you know we should definitely based on this little sample we, there's something we should look into more.
1: Yeah, how many times does that happen, where Dermot gets a little bit of a chance in a top four role and all the nerds like myself go, here we go, this is it. This is where Dermot's going to prove himself. We say year after year. And he, and just, he just kind of does okay. With it. Yeah, right? yeah. He never, yeah, never but, steals uh, that spot.
0: So, and I think that's, the, I guess like the general theme of this is like at some point we need to accept the levels that players show, right? So with, um, with guys like Engwall, with guys like Dermot, there's, there's like absolutely no shame in being a decent depth NHL player. And I think where people get frustrated is when they ex- expect these guys to do more and, and keep progressing in, in ways that maybe isn't supported by, by, by like by the data and by the history of them, right? Coaches, I think, have a lot of blind spots, but by and large, I think they get most things correct. And I tend to think that if if someone hasn't made a large impact across a variety of coaches and a variety of roles, that might say something that like you know. They they found their level. Now that's not necessarily the case for for Engvall and, and Dermot because I think they've had a max of two coaches in the NHL. Right? I was going to
1: say these guys have been with Keith the entire yeah. time, basically. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so, like in, in in that in that sense, that what I just said doesn't apply to them. But it, as a, as a general rule, I think it, it has some validity.
2: Yeah, I, I mean the thing about Engvall that's always been striking, and we've remarked on this, and maybe it's it's not as significant. But Chilton Keith seems to have a couple of players that he feels need a quite public kicking the ass once in a while to, to keep them motivated and Engvall more than seemingly any other player and you know this is a guy that he knew in the AHL that he's seen in the NHL and I is this just what he figures he needs or is it an actual sign that given the chance he would pe- prefer not to be playing Pierre Engvall quite so much I don't know
1: I don't. It's funny because I find myself just in life to be more of a Mitch Marner, where I, I do really well with positive reinforcement. You know, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't like the negative reinforcement. I'm not sure how well that works on me, but maybe certain personality types, it is an effective motivator. And maybe with Pierre Engvall, and we see it with William Nylander all the time. Not just this coach. Basically, every coach he's had in his life doesn't go with the carrot approach. They go with the stick approach. And I mean to say that it's it it. it it's worked. William Nylander looks really good right now. Would it have worked if you if you gave him 20 minutes a night from the get-go and didn't wait all this time to finally give him first-line caliber minutes and he starts producing at a first-line caliber rate? I don't know. Frankly, I wish I had that answer, but I can tell you that William Nylander, whether or not he's playing with Austin Matthews, is dominating play at 5-5, five five, putting the puck in the net. I remember he was second in shots on goal to Alex Ovechkin at one point. I don't know if he's still that high, but... The point is that he's generating offense, and I'm not that worried about this Leafs team long term this season because I think they're gonna have Austin Matthews on the ice for 20 minutes. They're gonna have William Nylander on the ice for close to 20 minutes, and then that third line is actually driving play at a positive rate. I feel very good about this team at five on five. I like their power play, penalty kill is weirdly good, and the goal. Well, but
0: do, do you feel yeah. good about them in the sense of they're a good team, or do you feel good about them in the sense of this is a contending team? Because I think, I think they're a good team, but. I don't give a shit about them being a good team, right? I want yeah, them- is
1: that a championship-caliber third line? And that's kind of been my, my biggest uh, pushback is that I don't think David Camp is a championship-caliber offensive third-liner, but he is defensively. And is, is that a 4000000 million third line that can be good enough at 5-on-5? Five five? And you have another scoring bottom six line, and what then you all- have those top two lines that obviously dominate.
0: But are, are the top lines good enough for what we need them to be right now?
1: I because- don't think the Bucks are going in, but I, I would argue yes.
0: Because again, like the bar has to be, we've committed with this setup where we're, we're paying, you know, four guys forty million. Whatever gets, you know, repeated ad nauseum, the top lines have to be not good. They have to be elite top lines. They have to be like in. We need them. We need to have two lines which are arguably in the top ten of the league. I know Don DeCicco actually did a ranking of the top ten lines in the league, and he had, I think, the math. He had Matthews and Nieder together because they were playing together at the time. They had, he had them, like fifth, and then a Tavares-Marner line, like 11th, which is effectively, like, you know, if you, if you buy that model, you're like, okay, that, that's good enough, right? If, if they perform in, in accordance with that. But are we going to see the results that, that back that up? We, you know, that, that's, that's TBD, and I'm hopeful of it because I, I believe in the talent of all four of those guys, but I don't think it's by any means a sure thing. I think the reality uh, is that fact, this season uh, is going to be Richie, haunted Matthews, by Martin what happened in the playoffs.
1: Rocking a sixty-six percent XG when they play together.
0: Yeah, no, I mean they're 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 playing well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Like the the on ice stats are are very good, right? Um, there, the issues, and I sound I sound like such a caricature of like, uh, you know, the the quote unquote boomer fan who who just looks at like you know, the success on the ice and not the underlying factors. But we we still have these games and these situations where these top lines fail against good set defenses. And we can only take so many of those in a playoff series because we don't have the supporting cast. So it's like we are so dependent on, on those top lines that we need them to be just like game to game, always winning their battles by like, not just a little bit. Like, they can't win 55 to 45. It has to be, like, that 60% XG every game, effectively. And that's a, that's a really high bar, and I don't, I don't know if they're up to it, but because it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing that they're being asked to do, but that's the, that's the implication of, of the salary that they, that they have and our investment in them. How right? is it is different from
1: I think some of the Pittsburgh teams that have been built recently? Well, Malkin and
0: Crosby of... are better. That's the difference.
1: Matthew's pretty good.
0: Yeah, no, Matthew's is very good. Sidney Crosby's arguably the fifth best player ever. Yeah, That's right? Fair.
1: I don't know. Matthew's right now, today, is he, is he as good as Crosby in no. some of those championship caliber he, years? He is not. See, I, I think there's a case to be made there. I, I would say I mean, Matthew's, he...
2: in terms of how he's been the last four years, is on the edge of some samples of that size compared to Crosby and Malkin. The peaks that Crosby and Malkin had at their very best, Matthew's has We forget how good that. they were.
0: Yeah, like, yeah. Crosby and Malkin were unfair. Crosby was, I think, we'd all agree, the best player of his generation. I think Malkin's the second best.
1: Yeah, right? not like, a top 100 player. Though.
0: Like <laughs> <laughs> Depending on how you want to slice it up, I I guess you know the, there was a lot of overlap with Pavel Datsuk, and I, I would have said Datsuk is, is better than, than Malkin. Um, you can very reasonably argue that Ovechkin's better than Malkin. I wouldn't fight you too hard on that. I think Malkin is, but, you know, again, not fighting you too hard. But, yeah, like... I mean, Matthews' peak Matthews might be similar to, to Crosby in, in peak years, mm-hmm. or, sorry, not or and Crosby in the championship years, not necessarily Crosby's peak years, because Crosby's peak years were were cut short yeah. um, through through injury and things like that.
1: Crosby's peak years, he's ba- he was basically doing what McDavid's doing right yes, now, but exactly. I like said it got cut short due to injury. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you know, but but this is no slight at John Tavares, who is a phenomenal, phenomenal player who will have like a borderline Hall of Fame case when his career is done. But he's not as good as, as Evgeny Malkin, right? And so That's a very fair point. Yeah. He
1: is looking better. He's looking more like the John Tavares that played in year one with the Leafs, I find, in terms mm-hmm. of getting to the slot, generating those chances. Again, not all of them are going in right now, but just the fact that he's winning all those battles is a, is a good sign for me because, like you said, when things get tighter against a set defense, I find that John Tavares is one of the best at breaking a cycle in yeah. the offensive zone.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And,
1: you
2: know, if the worry was, you know, he's aging, obviously. So are we all. And, you know, he had that that horrific injury against the Habs. And, you know, their concern was, will he be able to come back? And he looks like himself, which is very encouraging. So, so if you want to find a bright side, that's one for me, for sure.
1: I've got another bright side. The Leafs lead the NHL in five on four shot rate, which is just it's something they weren't doing last year. I think they're third in XG, Edmonton's in first. So that's, that's a stat you like being good in. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, they're doing it with two units. The Spetsy unit's always been productive, and my, my God, what he's doing for 900000 a year, just running a second power play unit at a high rate. And I know the, the pucks haven't gone in at 5-5 five and five this year, but I love slot passes as a stat because I think it's very – everyone knows what it means. You're making a pass to a dangerous area, completing it, and a shot is happening because of it. Spets is really good at that. He does it on the power play and at 5-on-5. But I just wanted to quickly touch on the power play because it sucked last year. The last 29, 30 games of the year, they were about break-even in goals for and goals against at 5-on-4, which just shouldn't happen (laughs) with the talent they have. And now they're actually getting gains at 5-on-4. They're they're getting more goals from their 5-on-4, which is what you need to do. And you're paying this star talent this much money. When those four guys are on the ice up front with Riley on the blue line, pucks need to be going in the net chances need to be generated and it's actually happening this year and i'm very happy
2: it was insane that it was ever as bad as it looked even for half of last season like just with the talent involved no sense. I, I know that i didn't get it you know shooting slumps are obviously a thing and they were undershooting their chances but it got so stagnant it was kind of absurd and it, i almost felt like the coaching staff was incredulous that these players could be this ineffective 5v4 like they were like okay it, it obviously can't continue and then it did longer than anyone thought that it would. So I'm glad to see that it's it seems more dynamic once again.
1: Arvind, I know you've always cared way more about the predictive metrics when looking at a power play than the actual goals for. I remember this is why you were so big on Jim Hiller back in the day because every power play unit he coached just had incredible predictive metrics. The pucks didn't always go in, but they were generating chances. They're getting chances right now, so I got to think you're pretty happy with the way. Yeah, I, th-
0: I think I think it's been improved in a lot of ways. and I mean. I do want to make the caveat that like, looking at Corsi and expected goals on the power play is, is, I think, tougher than at even strength because teams exert more control over the types of shots they take at 5v4, right? And they can set them up in more, um, in patterns which persist for, for longer because there's, there's less chaos and more structure. And that means that there could be systemic under or overrating of certain chances, certain types of chances, Same-
1: Seam passes exactly. are a major factor that you have to taken into account in the public sphere. No. Yeah.
0: Um, but I guess the one thing, one thing I like is we seem to be a lot less wedded to one particular setup or one particular orientation of players. We found a couple that seem to work and open up different options. And I think that um, lack of predictability will help us, especially in the playoffs, because it'll be, we'll have counters, effectively. There, there, there's not a single thing that they will take away and that'll just will collapse like a house of cards. Except you know the zone entry, but that's true of every every single power play.
1: Well, I um, think they're doing better with the zone entry now that William Nylander is one of the passing options on pv one yes. instead of a Joe Thornton or a Wayne Simmons. Yeah, I think exactly. That makes a very big difference. Well, and I'm, uh,
0: I I I'm, I was even last year I wasn't that concerned with the with the zone entries really. Like we, I think we got in the zone a reasonable amount, but I wanted to do it more. That was yeah, kind of it was course. just a disaster when we got in there in a lot of cases. Um, sorry, there's a, a dog barking uh, in the apartment complex. dog's
1: clearly a big fan of the power play, too. <laughs> but you, you, gr- you brought up a great point, which is that it's not one set power play formation the way you would think of Washington's or Tampa's is the, the shining example where Tampa has Kucherov on the right wall, Stamkos on the left wall, point in the middle, headman at the top, and it really doesn't matter who you put in front when you have mm-hmm. those four players. With the Leafs, they're moving things around. Matthew sometimes is on the left wall, sometimes he's on the right wall. Marner sometimes at the left wall, sometimes he's goal line. The other night he rolled up to the point and covered for Riley a few times, and frankly, that's my favorite spot on the ice for Marner. He I did, love he, it when he's
0: He did take a one timer from there, which is just like I we I was I was watching I was watching the game uh with a with a friend and and they were like, Marner doesn't seem very good at and they're a new fan, so uh they said, like, Marner doesn't seem very good at the one timers. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> you don't know how true you are.
1: <laughs> you picked up on that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I know Fuliman had a great tweet about this. This might have been years ago, where he said, Marner teeing up for one-timers on the power play is like when a movie star puts out a rock album. And it's just... Like, you're incredible oh. at, like, this thing, but you, oh. you're you trying this other thing, and you're not good at this.
2: Yeah, it was... Oh. And this is the thing, is I I think almost every podcast now, like, am I being too hard on Mitch Marner? Not just for the sense of, you know, like I'd like to be a nice person because that shit probably sailed a while back, but in terms of just fair law
1: degree, we all know you're not a
2: good person. It's actually like, it's a contract with the devil. It's that's what the license says. No, it's, um, I'm thinking like, okay, am I losing perspective on how good he truly is because I'm too focused on the cap number and I'm too focused on the playoff runs and I'm too focused on specific things that he's not good at. But it's, it can be a little striking sometimes when a play seems to like, I, I guess like it almost feels like the end point of the play is planned to be a Mitch Marner shot. It's like, that should not be plan A, that should not be plan B.
1: That's a win mm. for the defense. Yeah. So if you can get Mitch Marner to shoot the puck from anywhere outside, like the middle of the slot, then I think you've won as a defense. If, if he's yeah. shooting
2: standing still, I would say that's a problem for you. If he's on a rush mm. and he's you know got some opportunity to deke in, you're in trouble because he can well, dance
0: But while we're this is tangentially related, well actually two things that are tangentially related. One, Marner did have just this, this bonkers pass to Nick Ritchie mm-hmm. yesterday in the in the first period that unfortunately I think. Richie didn't ha- get, didn't make a great finish, and Jari made a, a good save. But that was just like, if that goes in, that's like a, a insane pass, like from it's basically from the, minor, the
1: backdoor pass happened.
0: Yeah, like from, from the left point basically to I guess the, the right side of the crease through three or four people right on the ice. Like it was amazing pass, and that that's something Marner can do, and like maybe five other players in the world can do. Um, the second thing is, I am, and again this is this is very much like armchair. Analysis and it's definitely not the simple. This is like the you know maybe one level elevated of the guy who yells shoot on the power play. Um, but on when the Leafs get an odd man rush, holy shit! It, can it be more obvious that we're trying to pass? Has has anyone on has any Leaf not named Austin Matthews gone on an odd man rush and thought maybe I should shoot this? Pure angle. Yeah, Nealander <laughs> N- does it a reasonable battle Like Kerfoot, we had like a, a semi three on one. And then Kerfoot's uh, like not even looking at the net. That he's was like, the most
1: Kerfoot play I've ever seen. His body's his completely opened up to shoot. Yeah, he's,
0: <laughs> he's like he's basically parallel to the um or he's perpendicular to the net. There's, like no chance of a shot there. The defender completely stops him. Um, oh, Marner had one, I think, a few games ago. I forget which game specifically. Where it's him and Matthews on a two-on-one, and it's like you can see it develop. And again, like I think it's against Nashville, and you see Saros is like basically in the middle of the net while Mitch Marner still has the puck. He's, like, not even trying to cover the short side, and Marner just passes anyways.
1: Well, I and mean, like, Marner's pretty good in those situations, at baiting the defender <laughs> and somehow finding a way to get the puck through.
0: Yes. I, in this case, like, I'm not going to suggest that I, I know better than the in-game optimizations of players in this, because I think generally they'll, they'll make the right call. But there's just a couple glaring examples where we do seem to really – overpass at times and i think it, it's a consistent pattern in our play that i'm assuming is there for a reason probably because you know performance analysts and data analysts on the team have said look we get better like if you think there's a reasonable chance at completing a pass across the ice you should take it because those are very good chances um and i think it's just it's noticeable when we overpass to the point of taking a good situation and ending up with nothing that doesn't mean it's not rather, like a, a good option but I guess we, it, it is something i've noticed
1: my counter is that I'd rather overpass than underpass. Because I think we've seen teams in year past years past that just kinda launch pucks towards the net mm-hmm. from wide angles and don't try to create that east west movement. Yeah. And those I are mean, the teams that really struggle to score.
0: There's a lot of gray area here, right? Like the, the reality is it it's it's messy. You're you're doing players are effectively deciding, okay, what is what is the play here that maximizes our chance of getting a goal. And it's, a very, it's very, very difficult, right? When we say someone has hockey sense, what we're saying is that they're very good at making those optimizing decisions. Yeah. Right? And, and we get frustrated when Pierre Engvall floats a wrister from 45 feet away into the, the logo of the, of the goaltender's jersey. So When he
1: turns back instead of saucing Andre Kasha onto a breakaway, yeah, Kasha so, slams his stick in anger.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's like there, there's, there's definitely a middle ground there. And like I said, I'm, I'm not saying that as a rule, you know, all the, you know, the Leafs can beat defenses with this one weird trick of just passing less. Like, it's definitely not the case. Um, but there definitely are idiosyncratic situations where we really fumble situations that look very promising, and I feel like that is very demoralizing as a fan.
1: I just, I don't know. I, I buy into what they're trying to do, in mm. that they don't take point shots. If you compare them well, to I'm, other I'm, teams I'm not saying they should league.
0: take point shots. I'm yeah, saying that there are some situations where they should take a good shot as opposed to, you know, scrambling to try and get the perfect shot. It, it, it's a balancing act. There's, there's, there's no one rule that works, but it's, you know, it, it can't be frustrating to watch at times.
1: And I know that's kind of in Keefe's argument is that sometimes you just need to shoot the puck towards the net and get a deflection rebound. You need those playoff gritty goals, and if you keep trying to make these fancy plays from perimeter happen, at some point the offense is going to run dry, and you're, you're not going to get those rebound opportunities that you're looking for. I just, I strongly believe in efficiency and in the NBA I don't like teams that launch a bunch of deep twos and efficient shots and turn down high percentage looks and for the least I, 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 feel argue, like they're
0: tr- I would argue the NBA analog to this is actually like teams that try and be like the beautiful game spurs um in 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 late and close situations like it, it's tougher to pull those types of plays off when defenses are really clued in that's true in basketball and it's true in hockey too and the counter to that is more like isolation scoring which people find you know can can be it's not in general it doesn't create in general as efficient shots but it's a set that you can get into easily that has low risk of turnovers and things like that right so i think minutes
1: of a playoff game give the ball to durant and he'll come yeah
0: exactly I, I think that's a trade-off that people don't always discuss with this is like the availability of those especially in heightened environments where defenses are more attuned to um, what you're trying to do So this is why I think the Leafs'
1: ozone play is just so important because I think they can do it against a set defense. I think with the motion that they create, it kind of reminds me of the Golden State Warriors right now, where everyone's moving around. I think they do a a much better job
0: than most teams of of breaking down set defenses.
2: I think there's sort sort of a discrepancy there that maybe can be resolved. Is the truth is passing on a two on one is probably the best play on Mm -hmm. average you are making lateral movement with the puck, it's hard to stop. It's especially hard to stop because the goalie has to cover your shot. And the more that he can look off you and ignore the risk of you shooting, the more likely he is to get over. It's. I think the Leafs actually have a lot of these. these little quirks where they're making what's probably statistically the best play, but it almost becomes so obvious they're ignoring the less efficient plays that those you know, plan A's become less efficient. I'm thinking of the power play last year when everyone and their dog knew the plan is to get Austin Matthews a one-timer. And that's a phenomenal idea. You should do that a lot if you can, but you have to punish people who think that they can just focus on Austin Matthews. Like the Washington Capitals power play is centered around Alex Ovechkin, but it's never been only Alex Ovechkin. There have always been consequences if you go too over on him. And so I but would apply 2 on to one always. phenomenon that yeah. you
1: just described about the game theory aspect of it. I know Matt Kane had an amazing article about this years ago before he got snagged up by an NHL team just trying to look at the, the risk reward factor. It was a Jake Gardner two on one where Jake Gardner just stayed with the player who didn't have the puck, effectively turning it into a breakaway. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, that's obviously the wrong decision. We watch that live and we go, well, that wasn't the optimal decision. But what is the optimal decision and how do we maximize on offense, our are, are, are chances of scoring a goal, and on defense, our are, are chances of preventing a goal. And like you said, you need to create that threat, that initial first threat, and if the defense takes that away, then you have a secondary option that you go to. On the power play, I think they have a bunch of different looks that they can throw out there and a bunch of different threats that they can go with, and that's why I'm feeling optimistic about their chances of scoring right now, because at 5-on-4, I think they have very good chances of scoring. At 5-on-5, five five, in the top six, I think they have a great chance of scoring. I don't think it's happened yet, but I think it's going to. And I like the looks they're generating for the most part.
2: Yeah, I think and to be clear, they've done more with the power play this season and it's looked better to me. And I have been encouraged. I'm, the thing about this season, just speaking purely on an emotional level here, is that it's very hard for every loss not to feel like here we go again. Like, uh, like, oh, yeah, uh, like classic Leafs. And I was thinking that last night against the Penguins. I was like, classic Leafs. Well, before last night, they had one ten 10 of 11. <laughs> you know, it, that wasn't classic Leafs. That was actually pretty good. And there were some genuinely impressive performances in there.
1: And They're top five in all the key metrics at five on five, despite rotten shooting luck.
2: Yeah, I keep trying to get back to, okay, what am I really asking them to do? And... In my heart, I'm asking them to win a playoff series in November. Well, you can't do that. I'm asking We're them... What am with
0: that attitude. <laughs> <laughs>
2: what I'm asking them is, is to convince me that they will win a playoff series um, based on how they're looking in November. And there are specific things I can point to saying, I'd like that to be addressed. And the Jake Muzzin thing, by the way, outweighs all others in my mind for that. Um, but to some extent, it's just they've burned us too many times in the postseason. And I won't trust them not to do that until at least one time they get through a round without me wanting to b- gouge my own eyes out. Okay. I keep
1: bringing up the word shooting percentage in every article I seem to be writing lately just because, to me, it, just, it exemplifies the entire problem with hockey, which is that in small samples, it's volatile, and the deserving team often doesn't win. That's why I joke about the deserve-to-win-o-meter because even though it's funny when you lose and you say, hey, we deserve to win... I still think in the long run that's what I usually care about. I care about how you played, not whether or not the pucks went in. And I know, in a six-seven game sample, all that matters is if the pucks go in. And in hockey, when they don't, and your best players shoot two percent against uh, the the team they faced this most recent year, and then the entire team shoots five and five uh, uh, shoots two percent at five and five against the Columbus Blue Jackets, it's frustrating. But I'd like to think that those things are going to regress. But I don't. A, I don't, don't think. I don't think Florida. it's good
0: enough to say. It'll probably regress. Let's do the same thing again. I think everything should be tailored on how do you make it so that a that doesn't happen again. B if it does happen again, how do you give yourself as much room for things to go, you know, to hit the hit the fan, while still performing well, while still winning, right? And that that's what that's what we need to 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 see really. It's like and that's what I think the coaching staff and the front office have to be focused on. It's like. Yeah, look. If if we get normal shooting, we're better than a lot of teams in the league. What happens if we don't? Right? I mean, What's you a- have
1: Austin Matthews right now, who just—he's not scoring at five on five. It's weird, but we know he will. So right. I don't—I don't know how to analyze this any other way than he's getting chances, they're not going in. Right. But I—I I, I think, look, that's—that's that's a
0: constant with hockey. Is you're going to there, there's going to be some volatility around the the amount that you that you score. What I think is really important is that as analysts and as as people involved in teams that you have to focus on like maximizing every single edge in every other way right um and that includes like are there are is there something systemic about the way we're 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 shooting or or the way we're handling our chances that's resulting in us not getting goals i don't know the answer to that
1: well, i don't know I don't, for four straight years they were shooting nine percent now all of a sudden a six percent shooting team i don't think that's true
0: well I, I, again I've, I've said this a few times i don't think we're suddenly a bad shooting team but i also don't think that it's automatically that we're going to be the exact same shooting team as before some of the parts of the roster have changed if we got good contributions from defensemen in years prior that might not be there now that's a factor.
1: There, better scoring talent in the top 12 among forwards sorry in, in years past you'd argue that there was better scoring talent in i the mean sir,
0: sir, it, it's changed it's been different for a little while now right but certainly when we had people like kadri and, and kapanen in our, in our top nine it was it was more evenly distributed for sure um but yeah like look, look uh, the the leafs have done have have done what they should have done over the first 20 games they're generally playing well the, the shooting percentage hasn't been there. It's probably it's going to rebound for sure to some extent. Maybe it gets to like above average by the end of the year. Maybe it doesn't. Right? Um, the worry is that if it doesn't, are we still just screwed? Do we have? Is there any other way that we can handle things? One good piece of evidence, and I know I've been very negative on this podcast in general. So I'll, I'll maybe we'll finish off by saying that the one most positive development is that Jack Campbell looks legit, and that's that's possibly the margin for error. Not that he was bad in last year's playoffs or anything, but. If you have a goaltender who can do that to the other team, that helps you a lot.
1: I'm just and not sure been... how confident I am in it continuing mm. for the rest of the season, let's Well, say. I mean, not you can never be level, that
0: confident with it yeah. continuing because goaltenders are another source of extreme volatility. But again, every single game that Rick Campbell performs well gives us a bit more evidence that, okay, we can, we can maybe rely on him more than we thought we could. It's
1: another data point. With goalies, we're just we're praying for data points at this point, right?
0: Yeah. So like the, the shooting percentage is... It is what it is, it, it, but the team internally, and I'm sure they are, should be doing everything they can to understand exactly what's driving it to a deeper level than us being like, eh, we're getting chances that they're not going in, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, no one likes hearing that at the end of the day. I just, I, I like pointing it out because it's a fact, and I think it's something that sometimes we forget when you're a player that you're really mad about has a low on-ice shooting percentage or a player that you think is doing great has a high on-ice shooting percentage. I think sometimes it helps to just kind of – come back down to reality and understand that some of these things are going to level out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, shooting percentage is an unpleasant excuse because shooting percentage failed us at some really critical times. And people do not want to hear that that was a bad dice roll. And looking at the games, it did seem like they were in some ways earning some of that bad shooting percentage.
0: They were struggling to break through. But it's it's hard to parse. Well, and it, it was more in... In early, again going back to the Montreal series, games six and seven. It's not like Montreal goalied us in those games hugely. No. Like they, they deserved to win those games, frankly. I mean
1: the goalie didn't. Was it the overtime game yeah, game in game six? Yeah, in game five, six, but like A that's
0: game, th- yeah. like we were kind of lucky to get to overtime in game six.
1: Yeah, that's very fair.
0: Right. So the the issue, like yes, we you know if we got better shooting, we probably would have won it in five, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also you know conditional on that happening, we still had really unacceptable performances in games six and seven, and. Similarly here, like conditional on what we've seen so far, we've still had some performances that are frankly really concerning, right? Like the a game, again, the game against Pittsburgh. That's a game where the offense doesn't really show up, and I mean, even beyond the how goals, how many
1: crossbars were hit in that game? I still think we're we, we this, put up less than two expected goals.
0: We put we put up less than two expected goals against a team that is not that great.
1: And I think good teams do that way well, more yes, often but, than I'm willing to admit.
0: Well, I'm, I'm sure they do, but I want us to be a contending team, and to me, a contending team would hopefully do that as little as possible. So every time it happens, it's a reason for concern, because if it happened at that point, it could happen in the playoff series. And look, I'm not, I'm not so insane to think, you know, this team should never have a bad game. This team should never have the offense to, uh, do terribly like that's going to happen with some level of regularity because it happens to every team but we need to minimize that as much as possible and every time that it does happen it's a little concerning because that's another time where it could happen in a playoff series and all we can do as fans and as uh, someone as, as for the people in charge of the team is minimize those to the extent possible we've had a handful of them already it's a little concerning so yeah like i don't have extreme levels of confidence and maybe i would never have extreme levels of confidence in any team Um, Because any team is prone to these sorts of failures. But the Leafs have also given me no reason to think that they will be any different. So that's my thinking.
1: Yeah, uh, man, I just, I think the version of this team that eventually wins a couple playoff rounds, and I don't know if that team exists, but assuming in, in an alternate reality where the Leafs go a few rounds deep in the playoffs, I think Matthews is putting the puck in the net a lot. I think Mitch Marner is racking up the assists. I think William Nylander is finding the back of the net. I think John Tavares is finding the back of the net. And I think those other players, like the David Camps and TJ Brody and you need Jake Muzz, and I think they're playing strong enough defense where you're limiting chances against. And I, I think that the shooting percentage bounces your way and you win a couple series. But maybe that's just the inner nerd in me who well, isn't willing the, to the, admit problems of years past.
0: No, the Leafs could have won a series in any of the last three or four years. It's not like they've been a million miles away, right? But, again, like it, is winning a series going to be enough for us? Like the, the goal is winning a cup. The goal is being Tampa.
1: I'm just at the point where I want to yeah. see them win a playoff round. Well, no, <laughs> I, done I, I do, too. Yeah. But, like,
0: but it's, you know, if they win a playoff round and then lose to, to Boston in round two, or lose to Florida in round two, we're probably a little bit happier than we are last year. But we're it's progress. It's progress, <laughs> but like we're still burning years of Austin Matthews prime. Like the, the goal is win a cup now. Mm-hmm. Are we good enough to do that? Possibly.
1: That's why you're signing all these defensemen on the wrong side of the age long-term contracts. Yeah. Because I like, know you're in your contention window right now.
0: Yeah, so everything I've seen suggests that the Leafs are for sure a good team. I, I mean, I, I would put them in the top 10 of the league with very little hesitation. Are they in the top five? I don't know. And I, I want us to be in the top five. And they haven't quite shown enough for me to, to be incredibly confident that, they'll, that they are you know, clearly, clearly, clearly one of the best teams in the league.
1: I think when the shooting percentage actually climbs back up, they'll be in that top five. But I can understand your hesitance right now with the pucks not going in. I get
0: it. I, well, my issue isn't the pucks not going in right now. It, it's the game to game concern of sometimes the offense just will will completely dry up, and we still ha- we're still very very prone to any injury to our top heavy guy- to our, our top end lineup. We still have essentially no backup goaltender. There, like, there, there are other concerns beyond just the pucks aren't going in.
2: I would say if I'm looking at, okay, what did I think in September and what has changed in terms of my actual assessment of how good or bad is this team? I thought they were a pretty good team before. I thought the David Camp 3C experiment would work less well than it has. I'm My faith in that is going up a little bit. Jack Campbell, I think, is on a huge heater. I knew he was capable of that. We'll see what his actual level is, but that's good. Jake Muzzin is worse than I thought he was um or at least i hoped that he would stave off aging longer and i'm starting to get more concerned about that and then the forwards i i mean again i never really believed that the power play ought to be that bad so it regressing or improving is just like that was what was supposed to happen so i guess i feel a little better than i did at the start of the year but it's very hard for me to to believe that the flaws are fixed and I, I'm I'm probably a little bit more optimistic than Arvind on this, but I see, you know, they've shown us flaws at some pretty key times, and I'm not quite at the point where I trust that they won't do it again. Maybe I just never will be I, until they do it. I but... don't
1: trust this team as far as I can <laughs> yeah, throw them yeah. in a close playoff game, but if I'm just trying to take a step back and evaluate the team and look at all the information that I, I can sift through— I see a top five team in the NHL personally. Maybe that's just because I'm in love with Andre Cash. But I, I like what they're doing right now. And I'd, I'd like to think that positive things are to come if they keep playing at the level they've been playing at lately.
0: Yeah. there have been. Oh, I very much hope you're correct.
2: Yeah. I, and I I have some sympathy for that view. Like the Nashville game, I actually
0: was really impressed with them. Yeah. And, and again, like if this team was not called the least, I'd probably be a lot more optimistic. So for for sure, my brain has been poisoned by the years of failures and like the... <laughs> frustrations I have with this particular set of laundry right it's <laughs> so but, hard
1: to be objective when you analyze this team I don't know how to do it
0: mm-hmm. yeah and it, like definitely there's there's a very reasonable case for them being a top five team in the league like a, a lot of models have, Dom Lestrisson's model which is obviously very very good still has at least as, like one of the very best teams in the league hockey, and hockey that's the,
2: projects them to win the president's trophy
0: yeah it's just that being that doesn't even necessarily guarantee us a whole lot and until we really do something, I'm still going to be a little bit hesitant. I'm going to look at every single flaw, every single poor performance we have as a sign of like, okay, that can still happen to
1: us. Mm-hmm. And you hear every Sheldon Keith press conference, he's doing the same thing. He's saying like, look, obviously the good things are going to stay good, but we need to fix these certain flaws if we're going to be a championship caliber team. And I understand that. You need to do that if you're going to be behind the scenes and coaching, but... For once, I I like trying to be optimistic with the Leafs winning, what, 10 of their last 12, even with last night's loss. So pardon me for for being optimistic about the (laughs) Leafs in November. That's just really uncool of me. I'm sorry. No,
2: honestly, uh, that was one of the reasons I I was so glad to have you on. I mean, we've guested on on each other's podcast for like a million years now. But uh, it it was good because I think Arvin and I are both kind of wrestling with how do you feel optimistic about this team again after everything that's happened? And, And if you don't, why not? Or if you do, why? So I think it's worth exploring, even if, you know, different people are going to see it differently. So. Yeah.
1: No, and I always love getting to these discussions with you guys, because I think there are times we disagree on certain things. We're trying to bring up as much evidence as we can to substantiate our points. Uh, so it's, it's a fun little nerdy afternoon for me, or I guess early morning for me on a Sunday afternoon here. So. uh Thanks a lot for having me on, guys. really appreciate it. I think i got to get on with my day here and go back to my Travis Dermott chart. Thank you you having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming. Yeah. We appreciate it.
0: Yeah, so um, do you want to quickly plug your stuff um, before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, sure. I tweet all the time now yeah, at Ian Graff. Yeah, no, totally an active user on hockey Twitter. But <laughs> I put out the post-game Leafs report cards there, and I've been doing that for the last couple of years where I try to grade each player on a scale from one to five, and... Even though I, I tell myself I'm not gonna do it, like, oh, coming into this season, I'm like, there's no point. Why would I do regular season Leafs report cards in a regular season that doesn't matter? I keep trying to extract meaning out of some of these games. It's really hard sometimes, on a Tuesday night against the Ottawa Senators, but I try my best. So if you can, uh, if you want to check out some nerdy graphs and uh, gifs and all my fun stuff. I'm doing it there and I tweet it out at Ian Graff if yeah, you that's check Maple, out Pot your, uh, your yeah, Maple Leaf Hot Stove is your yeah at Maple Leaf Hot Stove is where I put out the work mm-hmm. yeah. yeah
0: awesome so thanks for joining us uh, Ian um, as always you can find mine and Fuleman's work at penchpanpuppets.com you can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT thank you all for listening we'll see you next week